1965, there was a young Jewish, I won't call him a boy, a young man, who had grown up in Brooklyn and had become one of the best pitchers in baseball. In my high school years, I, everyone knew his name, actually. His name was Sandy Koufax. It probably helped that I went to high school with a lot of Jewish kids, so I knew stuff like that. I want to just say, on behalf of all my Jewish friends, that not that many Jewish people have become star baseball players. It's, kind of, it's, an, it's an unusual thing. It's not emphasized in Hebrew school. That year, 1965, the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, made it to the World Series. Right at this time of the year is when the World Series would have been starting. And young Sandy Koufax, who was developing into one of the great pitchers of all time, was scheduled to pitch the first game of the World Series. But Sandy Koufax made headlines and said... He was not available that day, and he could not pitch, because that day was Yom Kippur. And so this young man, with everything in the world going for him, said to the Brooklyn Dodgers and to Major League Baseball, I'm sorry, I can't go to work on Yom Kippur. So he didn't pitch the first game, and he did pitch the second game and lost. The Dodgers lost. But Sandy Koufax ended up pitching both game five and game seven of the World Series, and each time he shut out the other team, and the Dodgers won the World Series with him pitching game seven. So this is a baseball story that is more well-known than most and in a totally different way because this young man said, I cannot go to work on Yom Kippur, and he didn't. So there's a Yom Kippur story for you. As Amy has explained to us, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the two most important holy days of the Jewish calendar. And Yom Kippur is set aside as a day of repentance, a day of self-examination, and a day of atonement. The tradition is that you can't work on Yom Kippur so that you can devote yourself to this day of reflection, not do any work. Many observers have suggested that of all the major world religions, Unitarian Universalism is most similar to Judaism. I don't know if that would occur to you naturally, but this is something that a number of people have said, especially Reform Judaism, which is the more liberal uh, side of Judaism. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Daniel Bogard, who was most recently the rabbi of the Reformed Temple here in Peoria, once said to me that he thought Reformed Judaism 
and Unitarian Universalism were very similar. And I said to him, Rabbi Daniel, you may not realize this, but a lot of the people in my congregation are atheists. And Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel replied, lots of my people are atheists too. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> but these two traditions do have similarities. Liberal in theology, often but not always liberal in politics. An emphasis on education and the value of learning. Respect for science. Not much emphasis on an afterlife. And looking for the promised land in this world and not another. But we have to draw a line somewhere, I think, and I think the place we're going to draw the line is over the idea of repentance. You use are not into repentance. It's not a you you word very much. I just don't think we're a repenting kind of group, but I will say that our sensitivity that you use tend to have about this idea of repentance does not come from our Jewish heritage. It mainly comes from our Christian heritage. That's where the sensitivity is for the most part. In Judaism, you repent, you get reconciled, you move on. You go back to the next day refreshed and you've got a year till Yom Kippur. In Christianity, uh, in many groups, there's this idea that one's soul is constantly in danger of going to some horrible place. And so the whole idea of repentance has a kind of metaphysical drama connected to it, which I think most you use uh, don't resonate with. As a matter of fact, our early history, in some sense, was a rebellion against that idea of repentance. So it's not exactly our thing. But that idea does not exist in Judaism. In Judaism, repentance is more like getting back on the right track when you've gone off. It's a realignment, a refocus. It's not about hell, it's about realizing how we've fallen short of our ideals and getting back in touch with our best selves. But according to Yom Kippur tradition, that realignment does involve some self-examination. Two summers ago, I had the good fortune to visit Berlin, a truly beautiful, cultured, and welcoming city. Just a gorgeous city. To be honest, I have probably watched too many old World War II movies for my own good. And I was kind of apprehensive about going to Berlin. And I think part of my mind was still stuck in one of those movies. But my sense of apprehension was completely unfounded. And one of the things that it was just so refreshing is that Germany has become a truly progressive society, far more progressive than ours, by the way.
we're in the dust. And they have their challenges, of course. The challenge that's going on right now with refugees is very hard on German society. But the fact that they have accepted those refugees is not unrelated to the reflection they have done on their past. Those things are connected. And one of the things that struck me is how open they are about looking at the horrible period of fascism that they went through in the 20th century. It's not something that you can't talk about. You can talk about it. There are exhibits. There are historical markers. There's, uh, it's okay. They have really been through a period of self-examination. And they have looked the evil of that time in the eyes and they really have made changes. It's quite extraordinary. I was impressed. And I wonder to myself, has our country been through the processing we need to do to look at our wounds directly and openly? And I had this in mind, actually, last week when I watched most of the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. And I know that not everybody wants to watch that kind of show and that some of us just don't want to see that much suffering. And of course, that's a matter of personal choice, but I really felt a need to watch that show because that's my generation. I, I mean, I lived through that. I, I, you know, had to make decisions during that time. Uh, one of my friends is on the wall. So uh, I, I really felt a need to watch that because it's part of my own personal history. And I was present at a couple of the events that they described. It seemed to me, in a way, that this film that Ken Burns made is a kind of exercise in truth-telling. It's a kind of going back and looking at things sort of squarely and as much as possible telling the truth about it. And it's not that the truth is completely the same for every observer. Of course the truth looks different. We're all in the elephant story somewhere. But it's having that ability to look things more squarely in the eye and tell the truth even maybe a kind of confession. So the story of Vietnam, and I, I'm aware that some of you were not alive when this happened. I don't know how I got to be one of the elders. <laughs> was not on my bucket list. But the story of Vietnam is a story of high ideals, lofty commitments, untruthful leaders, colossal misjudgments, corruption on a grand scale in various places, resistance, rebellion, failed colonialism, savage treatment of combatants and civilians on both sides, chemical warfare, deluded expectations, and a humiliating loss by our country 
considered to be the most powerful nation in the world that could not possibly lose. It's a really, a, a really, uh, it's a horrible story, really. And yet, within that horrible story, there are still moments of true idealism and heroism, self-sacrifice, love and acceptance, and moments of real integrity. Just inspiring moments as well. But it is a kind of unflinching self-examination of an era in our history. And if the German approach is right, and they did the same thing in South Africa after apartheid with something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. If that approach is right, those kinds of self-examinations bear fruit. Because when we look at some of these truths in the eye, then we have a chance to be healed. Whereas if we never look them in the eye, then the healing is much more unlikely. So I give thanks to Ken Burns and all of his crew for for telling that particular story. We need to see the ways where we went off track and how we can do better in our time. And if we are not doing better in our time, then it may be that we have not done the necessary self-examination and, and reflection. It may be we haven't done that work. Self-examination is one of the crucial ways that we grow. And it's a something that we do as individuals, but we can also embark on this as a cultural group, as our country is. So I'm spending a little more time on the group part, but it doesn't mean that the individual is not important. So the, this theme of self-examination really put me in mind of the serious upset that took place in our Unitarian Universalist world this past year, and many of you know about this and some of you might not know about this at all, but uh, about six or eight months ago, I guess, there was an, a serious upset that took place in our denominational office, and it had to do with racial bias in hiring. And you may say, what? UUs involved in racial bias and hiring, and yet, when certain people brought up that issue and then the numbers were looked at, the numbers didn't tell a good story. It wasn't, wasn't admirable at all. And it created a serious upset, and the president of the UUA resigned. And then a lot of things happened after that, which we can uh, examine on another day. Now, Unitarian Universalists are not racially biased in general, at least not in our intentions. We're liberals, we try to do what's right. And for the most part, we do. But like many people in the world, we sometimes fall into patterns and we don't pay attention and we don't exam, we don't do, we don't have a ritual of self-examination in our religion. So sometimes we can fall into unhealthy patterns and it seems like that's exactly what happened. 
And so um, that happened. And it, it, you will hear more about it because really as a denomination we're in a period of self-examination about this. And that's a good thing. Now I want to tell you one other story, another UU story, because these stories are linked. So here's the other story. And it goes back right around the same time as Sandy Koufax and the Civil Rights Movement, right in that time frame. That's where the story comes from. Because during the Civil Rights Movement, a lot of UUs went to help Martin Luther King and the whole voting rights movement and civil rights movement that was going on in the South. A lot of UUs went down there. Art Greenberg went down there, who some of you knew. Um, the minister of our church at that time, Fred Lachane, went down and participated in the march at Selma. I, I'm sure there are others in this, related to this community that uh, were involved directly. And actually, two UUs were killed during the Civil Rights Movement. A minister named James Reeb and a layperson named Viola Liuzzo were killed in that period of time working for civil rights. And so during that time, a lot of African Americans looked at the UU movement and said, wow, these people are committed. We gotta check this out. We gotta find out what's going on. Because this seems like a very, very healthy group and a, a fairly significant number of African Americans joined UU churches during that era. Thousands. And the next thing that happened is that at one of the general assemblies following that time period, uh, there was a motion passed, and this is the delegates of UUs from all over the country, they passed a motion to create a program for supporting African American culture and interests within Unitarian Universalism. And they passed on it, big vote, and allocated money to that program over, I think, three years. I don't remember what the amount was. And then it turned out that that money that they had voted on did not exist. The money did not exist. It had been spent on something else. And so, the General Assembly made a promise and then turned around, the board turned around and said, we cannot keep that promise, that money is no longer in our accounts. And as you might suppose, there was an enormous sense of disappointment and outrage about that. Just imagine that. We thought we could trust these people. And You can, whatever phrase comes to your mind. Turns out they're just like everybody else. Nothing but promises that aren't kept. And so this is a wound on our history. And most of the African American people who joined the churches in that time, they just all left. So people sometimes come in and they say, boy, this is weird. You guys don't have more African American uh, members. What's up with that? 
I just told you part of why that's true. So that old story is connected with this new story about racial discrimination and hiring. And so whenever there are old stories, when there's a new story, it just stirs that wound. That, that's how stories work. That's a, that's a fact. That's why every time a kid gets shot, it just rips the scab off of any wound. And you just start over. So stories are connected in that way. That's how it works. So, when you hear that our, and by the way, none of this means that you use our good people. We're great people. We're just subject to all the same flaws as the rest of humanity. That's, that's the reality. So, when you hear this year that our movement is in a time of self-examination about racial justice, so this gives you some background on why that's happening. And it's, a, it's an open door because it's a time of self-examination. In Judaism, that sense of self-examination is considered holy. It's ritualized. It's in the calendar. People participate in that ritual. We don't have that kind of uh, tradition in the cycle of our year. But it's an important part of life. And it doesn't mean an obsession with guilt and shame. Because the best kind of self-examination does not delete, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. When self-examination works, what it leads to is, aha, I see something I didn't see before. That's an insight. I didn't realize that was happening. All right, now I can change that. It's not about guilt. We had a wonderful minister speak here about four or five years ago, Mark Morrison-Reed, who's uh, the real historian of the history of African Americans in our movement and is himself an African American. He said, do, said, white people do not get involved in guilt because it doesn't help anything. There's, that is not our assignment. Our assignment is to look at how things have happened and to see the ahas and to see why there's a sense of reconciliation that needs to happen. In the last episode of the Vietnam series, when you see the fall of Saigon and all of that, some of us lived through that, some of us didn't, we see the collapse of something that never really worked in the first place. But then about the last hour of the documentary, Ken Burns devotes to things that have happened in the last five to 10 years. And particularly he focuses on visits that former, the veterans of that war, the American veterans of Vietnam have made trips to go over 
and meet with the people they fought against. Meet with the North Vietnamese soldiers and the group called the Viet Cong, which was the underground group in South Vietnam. And so there have been these trips where, where they meet each other and they talk about their experiences. And you see a group of American soldiers and this group of North Vietnamese soldiers, they're all kind of, they're a little bit older. And at first, you know, it's like, I don't know if they're going to talk at all. I don't even know what they're going to do. And then there's a few words exchanged. And then you see them shaking hands. And they start talking about places they were and things they went through. And then you see, you see hugs. You see tears. You see them just getting across this enormous divide. I can't even imagine a harder thing to get across. And yet we see these scenes of profound reconciliation between people who participated in a horrible, bloody war on both sides. And so, these people grew. They grew tremendously in wisdom and forgiveness and reconciliation and in love. So those experiences proclaim to the world that even very deep human wounds can be overcome. They did it. That painful lessons can be learned and that we can be reconciled with each other across gaping chasms. There is a story of a rabbi who was talking about a story from the Hebrew scripture about enemies, a war story. And the rabbi said to the people who were listening to the story, he said, he advised them to drink of the wine and of God until they could no longer tell the difference between the enemy and the friend. It is not alcohol that does that. It's the elixir of love that is already present within all of us. May we all drink from that fountain until our lives are changed. Shalom.